October 2nd, 2006. Do you remember where you were at? Probably not. It was a typical fall day in the northeast part of the United States. Birds could be heard in the distance and probably little else. It was a quiet country day, and there was maybe the clip-clock of horses' hooves and the rumbling of a buggy down a black country road that could be heard, but probably little else, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Amish country. But that peace was shattered by the sound of gunfire that was heard inside of an Amish school that day. When local police broke into the one-room Amish schoolhouse, they found 10 Amish girls, ages 6 to 13, had been shot by Charles Carl Roberts IV, who had then committed suicide after this terrible and tragic deed. The school was a typical Amish one-room house, um, had the bell on the roof, two outhouses in the back, a little play field, kind of a little compound around it of fences to kind of keep the kids um, in there. It was built in 1976. On the blackboard that day was a teddy bear and in chalk a little sign that said, Visitors, bubble up our days. 26 children, ages 6 to 13, from three different local Amish church districts attended this little one-room school. Charlie Roberts was a local truck driver, and he serviced the local community by delivering milk um, to the English neighbors, the non-Amish, and the Amish as well. In fact, to several of the families whose kids were at the school. One of the things you need to know about Charlie is that nine years before this date in 2006, his first daughter, his little girl, died after 20 minutes of life. And apparently, as you might imagine, this incredibly tragic event impacted Charlie in ways that he probably couldn't imagine and in ways he would later talk about. He never forgave God for taking his little girl as he saw it. And eventually he planned through the years to get revenge. He was going to make God pay. He was going to bring God pain in the way that he had experienced pain at the death of his little girl. Now this is a portion of one of the letters that you're going to see right up here that he left for his wife. I'll try to read it as best I can. I don't know how you put up with me all these years. I'm not worthy of you. You're the perfect wife. You deserve so much better. We had so many good memories together as well as the tragedy with Elise. It changed my life forever. And I haven't been the same since. It affected me in a way I never felt possible. I'm filled with so much hate, hate toward myself, hate toward God, and unimaginable emptiness. It seems like everything we do, or every time we do something here, I think about how Elise wasn't here to share it with us, 
and I go right back to anger. On the morning of October 2nd, Robert said goodbye to two of his own children who were born subsequently at the bus stop. And then he drove to this little schoolhouse called the West Nickel Mine School on a blacktop road just outside of the small Amish community and English community of about 3,000 people. When he walked in the door, some of the kids recognized Charlie because they saw him at their farms. They saw him around town. They knew him, and he knew them. That day, the school had four other adult visitors, which is probably why that little thing had been written on the board about visitors bubbling up the day. It was the teacher's mother, it was her sister, and her two sisters-in-law. One of the women who was there as a guest that day was pregnant. And when the young teacher saw his guns when he walked in, she grabbed her mother without alerting the other teachers, and they made their way to a nearby farmhouse to call 911 and get the police there. The pregnant visitor was trying to comfort seven-year-old Naomi Rose when Roberts ordered the remaining adults to leave the building. And then he ordered the boys to leave. And the little boys went out to the outhouse on the back part of the property, and they huddled and prayed together. Roberts then had the ten remaining little girls lie down facing the blackboard, and he tied their hands and their feet. And he told the little girls that he was sorry for what he was about to do, but I'm angry at God, and I need to punish some Christian girls to get even with him. When the state police arrived, Roberts ordered them to leave the property or he would shoot the girls. And he then told the girls, I'm going to make you pay for my daughter. One of the girls, 13-year-old Marion, actually asked that he would shoot her first. And he did. And Roberts methodically went and shot all ten of the little girls And then he shot himself. When the police broke into the school after the shooting started, two of the girls, including Marion, were dead at that moment already. Naomi Rose died in the arms of one of the state troopers as he carried her body out. Emergency personnel arrived quickly. Helicopters flew in, like the picture you saw, and took the wounded to local hospitals in Reading and Lancaster, and Hershey, and Delaware. Two of the other sisters died at separate hospitals later that night. And in the midst of this tragic situation, the Amish parents, as they gathered, tried to comfort and console themselves by saying that these five girls who ended up dying that day were at least now safe in the arms of Jesus. Now, following this tragic shooting, as you can imagine of 10 young girls in a very peaceful, small, rural community among the Amish of all people. The media just swarmed in and kind of took over Lancaster, Pennsylvania from all over the world. 
They had a particular story about another tragic shooting to share. But in the days that followed, there was something else. There was a different narrative. There was a different story that started to emerge, a different story of truth that started to garner the attention of the people that were a part of this tragedy. In the midst of their grief over the shocking loss, the Amish community didn't cast blame. Weird. They didn't point fingers. They didn't call for vengeance. They didn't hold a press conference flanked by their attorneys and threaten to sue. Instead, they reached out with grace and compassion toward the killer's family. The afternoon of the shooting, an Amish grandfather of one of the girls who was killed expressed forgiveness toward the killer, Charles Roberts. That same day, several of Roberts' neighbors, Amish neighbors, visited the Roberts family, his wife and his two kids and their in-laws, to comfort them in their sorrow and their pain because, after all, they lost a husband and a father. Later that week, the Roberts family was invited to the funeral of one of the girls, Charlie Schott. And it's interesting to note that there were more Amish mourners at his funeral than there were non-Amish mourners. I could have picked any number of stories to kind of ground the truth of how difficult this teaching is that Jesus gives us tonight. But as I thought about the last few years, as I thought about all of the subsequent tragedies, all of the shootings in churches and schools and in um, theaters and you name it, all around our country and literally all around the world, I thought there was something really powerful about this particular one that has always stood out to me. We see in this tragedy two very distinct paths, and I hope you see it. Two very different ways in which to respond to the hurt and to the pain and to the loss that we might experience when we encounter fear, when we encounter threat, when we encounter injustice or abuse at the hands of someone or something that we perceive to be evil, that we perceive to be the enemy. It's tragic that the killer was tormented for nine years by the premature death of his daughter. And that's tragic in and of itself, but what's really tragic is how he's, his unforgiveness, his hardness of heart compounded the tragedy day after day, month after month, year after year in this growing spiral of anger and vengeance that just spun out of control, that bubbled up in rage, that spilled over in violence that brought even more pain and more loss and more tragedy to himself and to his family and to a whole community and world of people so far beyond his little girl Emily's death. Yet, at the same time, this other path, after he cold-bloodedly shot 10 innocent, bound little girls in the front of their classroom, in front of each other. The Amish community almost immediately forgave him. 
and showed incredible compassion to his grieving family. Compassion in action that modeled the example of the love of Jesus. Compassion in action that echoed the words of Martin Luther King Jr., which we heard queued up in the video before I stepped on stage. Love and mercy and grace dramatically captured the attention of the world. In a world at war and in a society that often points fingers and blames others, this sort of reaction is exceedingly rare, isn't it? We don't see this every day. Many reporters and interested followers of the story asked themselves because they couldn't wrap their minds around it, they couldn't understand because it's so countercultural, it's so different a story than the story that we see played out over and over again, day after day, everywhere around the world. How could they forgive such a terrible, unprovoked act of violence against innocent lives? How? How do you forgive that? Are they just weird? Is that just an Amish thing? We live in a world of hate and violence and anger and evil. It sucks, but it's true. It's a world of abuse and cruelty that is real and is raw. It is everywhere, it is every day, it is all around us, and it's inside of us. One of Luther's great contributions theologically was this idea of simulius de set peccator. We're all simultaneously saints and sinners. We're incredibly capable of deep and dramatic sacrificial love and absolute evil all at the same time. Every one of us. Just this week, there have been two more school shootings in our nation. Just this week, there's been another terrorist attack on an aid organization, Save the Children, operating and helping out thousands of kids in need in Afghanistan. And they're now grieving the death of a number of their employees. We hear about daily threats from North Korea and, and ISIS. There's no limit to the enemies who wish to harm us. There's no, en- no limit to the, the list of those who want to cause us pain. There's no limit to the number of people who want to provoke us to anger. Our world and our nation are divided by race and ethnicity and culture and politics and income and education and geography and age. You name it, you fill in the blank, you figure it out. The list goes on and on about what polarizes and divides us. It is nothing to fear the other, xenophobia. It is nothing to mistrust and demonize an opponent, to hate and despise and to shame our enemies, both real and imagined. The world doesn't blame us when we meet violence with violence. It expects it. It revels in it. It covers it on the news. And it waits and watches for it to happen. We have heard it said that we have a right to retaliate, that we have a right to seek revenge, that we have a right to riot, a right to hurt those who hurt us, right? But Jesus says something different. Say that with me. Jesus says something different. Jesus offers a different way. The Amish culture maybe more than some of our own cultures, 
is pretty good about following the teachings of Jesus. I'd like you to right now um, open those Bibles up and turn in your Bibles to our text from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. Again, that's Matthew chapter 5, 38 to 48. Give you a chance to turn to that. And let's pick up in verse 38, Jesus speaking. You have heard it said. This is, the, this is the fifth time in the Sermon on the Mount that he has used that expression. You have heard it said. And he sets up what's to follow. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist, resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to see you, wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go the second. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. That is weird. That is different. That is hard. But that's not where he stops. Now we get the sixth expression. You have heard it said by the world, you shall love your neighbor and you'll hate your enemy. But I say to you, say that again, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Andrew Slavsky, in our, in our prayer huddle before we started, was talking about how, how he had heard Andy Stanley talk about in another video that he had seen or a podcast that he had heard, how, how Stanley kind of comes to grips with this, that here in the Sermon on the Mount, here in all these things that we're hearing that are so difficult, that are so hard, the bar is set so high, we're even told to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. That is impossible to attain. We can't do it. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not one. And we sometimes get caught up in that as if it's a challenge. Well, I can maybe work toward perfection. No, you can't. None of us under our own strength can do any of the things that Jesus is talking about here. It is not our natural default. It is a conscious act of the will. It is an invitation of the heart to the Spirit of God that infuses us with the power to do any of this stuff. This is radically different and counterintuitive when it comes to responding to fear and threat, evil and enemies. The way of Jesus is not the way of the world. It is difficult. It is hard. What the world sees as weakness is the greatest strength of all. I, I, had, a, I had a homiletics professor in, in seminary, and he had this wonderful Zen um, quote that he, that he always had hanging on his door of, the, of his office, and we were like, where did you get this? Where? It came from like a truck stop in Oklahoma. <laughs> Scribbled on the wall. But this is what it said. It said, there's nothing so strong as gentleness, nothing so gentle as real strength. Nothing so strong as gentleness, nothing so gentle as real strength. 
just to kind of parse that out for just a small second for you, the easy thing to do is to push send and fire off a pissed off email. The easy thing to do is to express road rage as you're filled with it and follow that car that cuts you off. The easy thing to do is lash back out at the person who hit you first. It is a really hard thing, if you're capable of responding, to not do so. I do not do a good job at turning the other cheek when someone pushes me. I instantly want to push back, and I'm capable of it. It's a much harder thing for me to restrain myself when I have the capacity to respond. That's real strength. This is not a wussy way to deal with the world. What we have heard and seen and experienced in the world and in our lives is most often nothing like what we see in the reign of God, in the way of God that Jesus shows us. It's so different. Now, of course, we had a clue of what this upside-down world would look like, what this different kingdom of God looks like when it comes to being in comparison with the kingdom of the world. We, we see it right away in the Beatitudes. Look at, look at, look at chapter 5 again and go back to verse 3. You know, most scholars look at the Sermon on the Mount and they say, this was probably Jesus' stump speech. This is probably the, the, the main message that he shared in every community he went into. And sure, he added new stuff all the time, and he was, he was dealing with specific situations all the time, but, but at each stop, this was always shared. Because this is what the kingdom of God looks like. Look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they are the ones that are going to get to see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, hear this as a promise, hear this as a gift of grace. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is what the world of our brother Jesus looks like. This is what the world of our heavenly father entails. Over the past few weeks of wading through these difficult countercultural, otherworldly teachings, Jesus has given us a clear glimpse, a foretaste of the feast to come, a look into what it means to be a Christ follower, to be a child of God, to be a citizen of his kingdom. And it's a pretty unique look. It's not like anything we've seen before. Speaking of unique looks, this is a picture of my family um, after one of our Christmas Eve services at NAS this year. 
Now, it's not clear from the picture. You can't see it as clear as you can in some, but our three boys look very similar to one another. You can tell the family resemblances when you see them head on. There's no doubting that I had something to do with them. And I'm sorry for them. <laughs> but here's what I'd like you to do right now as you think about family resemblances, as, I, as you think about um, um, the, these kinds of things. What I'd like you to do is turn to your neighbor for a moment, and I'd, share, I'd like you to just share for a moment, honestly. What are the ways that people have, through your life, said, they, you, you remind them of your mom or your dad, the, the way they laugh or the way they talk or the way they walk or the way they act or their worldview or their perspective on life, whatever it may be, whatever that resemblance is in your family, turn to your neighbor, talk about what it is. You got a minute. Give you 20 more seconds here. And I promise I'm almost done. We won't go like two hours like last week. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, it's pretty obvious um, when a person shares a family resemblance, maybe you have the same eye color or hair color, maybe you have roughly the same build, or maybe you kind of walk the same as your mom or dad or something like that. Again, maybe it's your attitudes, your behaviors, your worldview. I wonder, and I want to end tonight by asking all of you to think about for just a moment, kind of like what you just did with your neighbor. What do you think people see in your life? In the way you speak, in the way you walk, in the way you act, in the way you think, in the way you treat other people. What do you think reminds them of Jesus. When someone looks at your life and gets to know who you are, what about you resembles your heavenly father? How are you different from the eye for an eye, legalistic, bare minimum, mean-spirited, selfish, retributive, vengeful way of living that is so characteristic of our world? How are you different? How is your story more like the one that Jesus lives and the stories that Jesus tells? I'd like to end tonight by having um, us take a look at one more Jesus story. In the last six months, I, I just turned, you know, I'm 47 years old. In the last six months, I can't see small print. So I'm going to put this on. I'm going to have everybody um, open your Bibles again if you closed them and turn to Matthew 18. We're going to skip ahead a few chapters here. We're going to pick up on one of the great teachings that Jesus gives 
about the nature of sin and forgiveness in the life of every Christian. And he just sets out some um, pretty powerful teaching, and, and usually the first person to pipe up is, um, God bless him, Peter, in his spontaneity. And Peter jumps in again. He's, he's, got, he's got this thing that he wants to say, and verse 21 is where we pick up of chapter 18. Then Peter came to Jesus, and he asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, poor Peter, and if you have time, take a look at the, what precedes this, because Peter actually, I thought, you know, I kind of thought he finally had the right answer. Because what he does, Jesus just very clearly set out a, a thing that is a whole other sermon, where he basically says, three strikes and you're out, and then Peter's like, okay, three strikes, you're out. I always, get, I always screw up every answer I ever ask this guy, or every question. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to double it and add one for good measure. There's no way this could go wrong, you know? So if I forgive seven times, am I like the best guy ever, Jesus? Eh, eh? <laughs> no, not at all. Tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Or seven times 70. It depends how you want to read that. And then Jesus tells a story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold... Um, in some of your translations, it probably says 10,000 talents. A talent, just so that you understand what it roughly is equal to, one talent is roughly equal to the average laborer's yearly wage. So 10,000 talents is a hell of a lot of money, okay? It's a lot of money. And as he began the settlement... This was brought to him, and since this guy was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had would be sold to repay the debt. And at this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him, despite this huge debt, and he canceled the whole thing, and he let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Now that would be, in some of your translations, a denarius. Or it would say denarii for plural. But a denarius is the equivalent of the average laborer's single day's wage. So a hundred single day's worth of wages versus 10,000 years' worth of wages. And you see the disparity pretty quick. And in fact, he grabbed him and he began to choke the man who owed him the money. Pay back what you owe me. Now. And his fellow servant did exactly like he had just done with his boss. His, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged, and they went and they told their master everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Jesus calls us to flip the script. And the only way we ever are going to do that, and I'm, I'm done, the only way we're ever going to flip the script 
is when we remember that we are, we're not just victims. We're debtors who owe so much to God ourselves for every terrible, rotten thing we've ever thought or done or said. And when we forget that, then it's so easy to put a chokehold on somebody else when they hurt us, when they trespass against us, when they harm somebody we love. And so I'm going to invite the band forward right now, and they're going to sing a song by David Crowder that has become kind of one of my favorites. I love Crowder. I think he does a great job. I love his music. Um, But this song is a song called Forgiven. I'd like you to listen and read the words if they're up on the screen, and I think they will be, as just a little reminder that forgiven people are a lot more forgiving. And as long as you remember how much you've been forgiven, it's a lot easier to forgive others.